the risk of annoying those of you who do not like interactive sermons, uh, I'm going to begin by making six statements and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand each time if you agree with it or keep your hand down by your side if you don't. Now, this is not a test, okay? I'm not going to take any notes. I'm not taking mental notes looking around who's doing what. And I will not ask you to explain or defend uh, why you raised or didn't raise your hand. So there'll be just raise a hand or don't, okay? But I think I want to do this because I think it will help you to see the relevance of the passage of Scripture that we are going to be looking at today. So is that okay? Here we go then. First statement. Raise your hand, please, if you agree with this. I believe that Jesus was really physically raised from the dead. First Easter Sunday. Okay, thank you. Second statement. I am confident that I will be welcomed into heaven when I die. Wonderful, thank you. Third statement. I think reading and studying the Bible is a good thing to do. Probably why you're here. Fourth statement, I believe that we should send missionaries and church planters to lands that know nothing about our faith. Wonderful. Fifth statement, I think it is right to give generously, financially, to support godly causes and to help alleviate suffering in the world. Okay. And last statement, I believe that every believer not just the professionals like pastors and monks and nuns and priests, every believer should be active in their faith. Wonderful, thank you very much. Now, if you're wondering why I started with that little straw poll, it's because Jesus said this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's the link. We know from what we read about in the four gospels that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have unhesitatingly raised their hand to at least five of those questions, if not all six. So on resurrection, unlike the Sadducees, who were the, they were like the liberals of Jesus' day, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, like most of us do. Eternity, the Pharisees were very confident that they themselves would get into heaven when they died, like most of us. On the Bible, the Pharisees were keen readers of Scripture. Oh my, they learned hundreds of verses of the Torah by heart. They spent many hours in Bible study groups, much more, in fact, than any of us do, I would guess. Giving. The treasurer would love a church full of Pharisees because they methodically gave one-tenth of everything they had to God, from their monthly pay to the herbs in their, they grew in their gardens. And on mission, the Pharisees were absolutely passionate about spreading their faith. In fact, Jesus once said they would happily and willingly travel over land and sea to make one single convert. And finally, contrary to what many people think, 
The Pharisees were a lay movement, not a professional movement. There were no ordained priests or professional rabbis. They were, in fact, in so many ways, the Pharisees, they were just like us. In fact, the evangelist Eric Delve once called the Pharisees the evangelicals of Jesus' day. Quite disturbing. Just, how ama- just think how amazing King's Church would be if it were filled with Pharisees. It would be an amazing church. Bible-believing, mission-minded, tithing, committed individuals, sure of what they believe and confident of the assurance of their salvation, their eternal future. And yet, I repeat, Jesus said, looking at uh, this morning's scriptures, you've got to do a lot better than they did if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Well, we better read the whole passage, didn't we? Uh, It's quite a long one this morning. Phil had just three or four verses last week. I've got the rest of the chapter. Uh, And uh, time is not going to allow us to go into detail on every single um, verse here. But we're picking up from verse 17 of chapter 5, and we'll read to the end of the chapter today. This is Jesus speaking in this Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside One of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, uh, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body 
and for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, you've got to give it to the Pharisees. They were totally devoted. They were diligent and methodical. And people really respected them, actually, in Jesus' day as morally upright citizens. And I doubt if, in practice, many Christians come close to their attention to detail in terms of their reading of the Bible. When it came to living out their faith, the Pharisees were obsessive, in fact, about getting it right. But Jesus was constantly clashing with them. One of the things you notice when you read through the Gospels, time and time again, they did not get on at all. Now, what was it about the Pharisees' approach that made the ordinary people admire them, but for Jesus was like a red rag to a bull? Well, there are two things, basically. There are actually more, but I'm just going to boil it down to two this morning. First of all, the Pharisees demonstrated spectacularly well that it's possible, technically, to observe all Ten Commandments, for example, tick all the right boxes, say all the right words in the right places, but with a self-congratulating and judgmental heart of stone. And secondly, they made it hard and complex and wearisome for people to live out their faith. And here is what they did. They devised a convoluted religious scheme. 
which they called a fence around the law. A fence around the law. And they took the 613 commandments from the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, and they classified them into 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And they wrote on top of that thousands of extra rules to make absolutely sure that you didn't accidentally transgress any of the 613. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, living by faith for people had become such a burden and a treadmill, and it squeezed the joy out of everybody. And one big area of concern for them was how to make it easier, inverted commas, for people to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, here's a very small sample of the sort of thing they came up with. A new lamp could be moved from one place to the other on the Sabbath, but not an old one. Hot food could be kept warm by covering it with clothes. Well, who wants to do that? Clothes or feathers or dried flax, but not by covering it with damp herbs or straw, which would engender fresh heat and thus work on the Sabbath. A donkey could go out on the Sabbath wearing its saddlecloth if that saddlecloth was attached before the Sabbath, but not on the Sabbath. And it could not, under any circumstances, wear a bell, for that would make the animal work technically by ringing it whenever it moved. Female goats could go out wearing a protective cloth under their udders, provided the cloth was there to keep the udders dry, but not if it was there for collecting milk. And so it went on. This is the sort of thing they came up with. Literally thousands upon thousands of directives and procedures like those ones. How could you possibly remember it all? Nobody could. But this is how they lived, and this is how they said to everybody else, you've got to live this way as well, 24-7. You might be thinking to yourself, well, this is all very well, but it's not really an issue for us, is it? in the church, at King's. But it is, actually, because Pharisee thinking so easily worms its way into the church. A couple of weeks ago, Kathy and I had a friend round for dinner, and she was telling us as we ate that her dad had been grumbling and complaining to her that week because a man had turned up to church, in short, the previous Sunday. But it was a hot June day. It was really warm. And there's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not sing to the Lord with the knees uncovered or anything remotely similar. Where did this man get his thinking from that it was somehow out of order to wear shorts to church? Here's another example I read about quite recently. I'm not convinced, actually, this is really a true story. I did try to look it up, but... Um, it's, it's amusing anyway. There's a pastor in Canada, right, who woke up one Sunday morning to find that the roads were blocked by heavy snowfall overnight. And you can get up to six-foot snowdrifts in Canada. Isn't that right? If they can. So this guy, this pastor, was forced to skate on a frozen river to get to church on time. And when he arrived, 
the deacons were horrified that their preacher, a man of God, had actually been skating on the Lord's Day. I mean, of all the worldly ways to get to church, of all the worldly ways of transporting yourself to the house of the Lord, he chose ice skating that day. And they were so aggrieved that they held an emergency meeting right after the service that afternoon where the pastor had to explain that it was basically a choice between skating to church on this river or not getting there at all. And finally, one of the deacons, after this long and exasperating meeting, he said, did you enjoy skating to church? And when the pastor answered, no, not really, everyone breathed a sigh of relief and said, ah, that's all right then. (laughs) Anyway, Jesus says, In verse 20, as I said before, that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? Does he mean that if we, sorry, if they obey 50 commandments in one day, we have to obey at least 100? Is that what he means? Well, no, it's not what he means at all. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he writes about the entire passage we just read earlier, and he puts it this way. He says, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisee righteousness because it is deeper, being a righteousness of the heart. The heart. And for the rest of this chapter, Jesus illustrates for us what he means by zoning in on six areas which might look a bit random for us. But it's because, as well as the Sabbath, it's where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were most leading people astray and most burdening them with extra rules. They were creating traditions and fine print and clauses and sub-clauses and when it suited them, convenient exemptions to avoid the clear challenge of Scripture. And each time, you may have noticed this because I highlighted it on the screen, each time Jesus begins by saying, you have heard that it was said or something similar. And each time he follows it with the words, but I say to you. And what we need to understand here is that Jesus is not contradicting Scripture. He's not not saying, the Bible says, but I don't agree with that. That's not his point. So whenever Jesus refers to Scripture, he never says, it was said. He always says, it is written. It was said, it is written. Remember when we looked at Um, Chapter 4, Jesus in the wilderness with his encounter with Satan. Three times he said, it is written. That's the words he uses when he's speaking about Scripture. So Jesus never says, for example, it is written, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, I'll go on. It's okay, really. It's not what Jesus ever says. Jesus' quarrel is not with the Bible. It's with tradition, the tradition of men. It's with the way people take God's word and they add to it and they twist it and they make it fit their agenda. 
Now, the six things that Jesus highlights here are murder, sorry, murder, adultery, divorce, honesty, revenge, and attitude to enemies. And what does Jesus do here? In each case, he affirms God's word as authoritative. And then he applies what God's word says at a deeper level. Because Jesus is interested not just in the action that a commandment, for example, talks about. He's interested in um, the, the attitude that leads to an action. Because as we know, God does not consider outward appearances. God looks at what? The heart. So let's run through these briefly. And this could be a sermon series in itself, this chapter. I'm going to run through it in about five minutes. Murder, verses 21 to 26. So for Jesus, the fact that I haven't actually violently ended somebody's life does not make everything all right. If I'm always seething with hatred and full of contempt for people. Adultery, verses 27 to 30. For Jesus, the fact that I haven't literally slept with a woman who is not my wife does not make me a faithful husband if I am constantly and deceitfully drooling over lustful fantasies. Divorce, verses 31 to 32. People were treating their marriage covenant in Jesus' day a little bit like ordering something off Amazon. You just send it back and pay nothing if you change your mind. That's what they were doing. And the Pharisees actually were leading the charge for quickie divorces. And they were leaving their wives poverty-stricken. But for Jesus, marriage vows are sacred. And divorce is usually painful and destructive. So if my heart is right, I will only consider it reluctantly, and when there's been a serious breach of trust, like in the case of unfaithfulness. Oaths, verses 33 to 37. See, for Jesus, if your heart is right, you don't have to ever multiply words when you're saying something like, I'll be totally honest with you, or no word of a lie, or I swear on my mother's grave and I cross my heart and hope to die. You haven't got to say any of that. When people speak that way, have you noticed? It's usually a signal that whatever follows should be treated with extreme skepticism. If I have a truthful heart and I've built up a track record of honesty and people know that I speak the truth, I don't need to work hard at convincing people to believe me. Retaliation, verses 38 to 42. For Jesus, if your heart is right, you won't constantly fixate on getting revenge. If you fight fire with fire, what do you get? A bigger fire. But a kind word, the proverb says, turns away wrath. And finally, love, verses 43 to 48. For Jesus, if your heart is right, you'll find the Holy Spirit can actually help you to accept and love difficult and annoying people. 
not just those who are attractive and easy to like. And so in all these aspects of life that Jesus picks out here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus challenges us by asking, what is your heart like? Because that's what God looks at. What is your heart like? I once heard about a, a building project in a large church in the USA. And when it was complete, the building work was done, uh, the time came for the, for the inspection before signing off the work. And so the church leaders met uh, the builder in the main auditorium. And uh, it was a pretty amazing place. It was immaculate. It was really well done. But somebody from the church's building committee had brought along with them bright halogen lights to project onto the ceiling plaster. And when he switched these lights on, suddenly all the little bumps, all the little crevices, all the hairline cracks, all the small imperfections, not visible in normal lighting conditions, suddenly became apparent. And the builders had to go through the fine print on the contract to point out that it's that it expressly stipulated that additional lighting was not admissible in determining the quality of the work. Now I say this because the Ten Commandments and all God's law in the Old Testament are like turning on a bright light that shows you how dirty your living room is. And so when Jesus says in verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law, or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. It's really helpful and necessary even to be able to see the dirt and the dust in your room. And that's why Jesus says in verse 18, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will disappear from the law, the Old Testament, until kingdom come. See, God's Law, God's word in the Old Testament can show me how dirty my room is. Great. But it is not the mop and bucket that clean up the mess. For that, we need Jesus. Some years ago, I was responsible for running Alpha courses in a local church. And it's just amazing, Alpha. But I think we're going to be running it here again this autumn. It's just an amazing thing, Alpha. It was so wonderful seeing people come to faith in Christ. It's a, it's a simple, if you don't know it, it's a simple introductory course to Christianity. And one September, we welcomed a woman on the course who told us she'd been trying unsuccessfully for a baby for 14 years. Hormone injections and IVF did not work. And when she reached the age of 40, the doctors ended her treatment and they told her she was now too old for it and she should just forget it. So she came to us distraught. And the following autumn, the following September, another woman signed up for the course. She told us that she had had an abortion when she was a teenager. And there'd been complications, and it made subsequent attempts for her to conceive and carry a child impossible. So that's two years in a row. Uh, both women had gone through painful breakups in their relationships. Both came to the church, I would say, with a, uh, 
a demeanor of, of shame and desperation. Both actually came to Christ one year after the other on the Alpha course. Both were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the Holy Spirit day halfway through the course. And both told me through tears two or three months later that they were now pregnant. In fact, according to our calculations, both may well have become pregnant the day they returned home from the Holy Spirit day. And they both gave birth to healthy babies the following August, one girl and one boy. The Pharisees would probably have lectured these women about the rights and wrongs of the choices that they made. They would have ostracized them. And in fact, both women did come to a point of repentance and regret for some of the mistakes they made in the past. But Jesus did not leave those two women brokenhearted and shamed. He brought for them forgiveness and a new heart and healing and blessing beyond their wildest dreams. And at the end of the day, our righteousness as Christians, it, it's not the fussy and exacting and impossible standard of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Our righteousness is the perfect righteousness of Christ that God wants to give us by faith as a free gift when we come to him broken. Well, I'm going to close by coming back to where I started. Does your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? If you're in the habit of reading the scriptures, is Bible study just a, a weary intellectual exercise for you? Or does it lead you to Jesus? He's the life of which the word speaks. If you like to give money, as they did, 10% of their income, the Pharisees, do you give it grudgingly, a bit out of obligation, counting it out, not a penny over what you've set in your mind to give? Has tithing become a little bit like a tax on faith for you? Or do you just feel blessed to be able to give generously because God has blessed you with so much? Do you do it cheerfully? Praising God for the way he makes what's left go so much further when you do it in faith. And as for the Pharisees' mission focus, is the message of my life about the good news of grace or about the bad news of religion? And finally, if you raised your hand for the second statement, I'm confident that I'll be welcomed into heaven when I die. I think most of you did. Well, how blessed you are. What an amazing thing to have assurance of salvation. But if you didn't raise your hand because you're not sure, really, you're not really not sure yet where you stand with God. Have you never really made that commitment of faith to him? If you're not yet certain that when you die, you'll be welcomed into heaven and given eternal life, take a step of faith today. Why don't you do that? Take a step of faith today. The same God who was there for those two women I talked about 
is there for you, full of grace, full of life, full of an offer of amazing blessing. If you haven't yet made that decision, do it today and settle it in your heart before you leave that place. Mel leads us all in prayer.